Well, if you've been with us for long, you know that we're continuing on our study through the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. And last week we wrapped up chapter 14, which means this week we'll be starting out in Luke chapter 15. And so if you have your Bibles or you've got some sort of device that you can access God's Word on, I'd ask that you'd find your way there to Luke chapter 15 so that we might all together just gather in studying what God has for us today. In a message that I've titled, The Hope of the 99. The Hope of the 99. Now, I I heard a story of of one young farmer's son. He's about a teenager uh, who one day was sent by his father to the market in order to sell chickens. All right, and this was an especially slow day at the market. So what this young farmer's son found was that he did not sell any of the chickens that he took along with him and as a matter of fact things even got worse than that as he was heading back home with this crate of chickens on his wagon uh, he hit a rock in the road and, and the crate fell and the door sprung open and as you might imagine chickens went everywhere so you know this this young man he was he was concerned because He wanted to return faithfully with what his father had sent him to take to the market. So he began to search through the town, throughout the village, hoping to find all of those loose chickens. But he could not remember exactly how many chickens his father had sent with him. And so he gathered up what he could. He just knew that there were bound to be some chickens that had found their way into some places that he was not able to find them. But he he dusted himself off. He closed those chickens up in the crate. He took them on home, and and he spoke to his dad, that farmer, when he got home. He said, Dad, I just just want to tell you that I had a little bit of an accident on the way, and uh, I I wanted to let you know that I only came back with 12 chickens. His dad said, well, boy, you did pretty good. I only sent you with seven chickens. Now, it would appear to be simple math to most of us to think through a scenario like this that that a greater number indicates more value. Okay, we're going to take away the the ethical concern that this guy's apparently stolen some chickens. But generally speaking, we think that more is greater. That's the way things work in the business world. If if a certain business has a decision to make, and they put together their forecast, they put together their predictions, and they decide that a certain decision would would bring in more dollars than another decision that they might make, then the more profitable decision tends to be the one that is chosen. Likewise, in politics, if a politician determines that taking some position over another will win more voters, then that politician will typically choose the more favorable position. That's why we end up with so many politicians who are kind of straight down the line in terms of what their party represents. And in most realms that we could imagine, individuals want to maximize the return on their investments. And so they go after what makes the majority happy. But when we come to Luke chapter 15... Jesus draws our attention to the number that matters most to God. And it's the number one. Luke chapter 15 is one of the most well-known and one of the most well-loved chapters in all the Bible. And and it's easy for us to see why. Because in this chapter, 
God reveals to us his relentless pursuit of the lost sinner. And in parables that proceed from the lost sheep to the lost coin to the lost son or the prodigal son, as you may know him, Jesus teaches us here in Luke chapter 15 about his burden for the individual who is lost. And so we love to hear of this passage of of God's burning heart for the lost, pursuing the lost. And we're going to spend the next few weeks really digging into Luke chapter 15 in a series of messages, kind of a series within a series. If you remember, we're in this this outcast series, studying through the book of Luke, where Luke so often draws our attention to the outcasts of society that Jesus is reaching out to, to include. And so in this kind of series within a series, as we focus on Luke chapter 18, I want us to have this kind of common theme for the next few weeks of God's lost and found. Because that's what we are ultimately seeing revealed here in Luke chapter 15. That God has a burning heart, a burning passion for the lost to be found. And that's the common pattern that we see in these three parables. And in each case, one item of value is lost, which leads someone who cares for that which is lost to go after that which is important to him. And when it is found, there is great rejoicing in all three cases. So today we're going to look specifically at the first of those three parables, which is often referred to as the parable of the lost sheep. But these three parables do not occur in a vacuum. No, Jesus speaks these lessons into a set of circumstances that really drives home for us his mission and his heart. So look with me now, if you're able, in Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 1. If you're able, I'd ask that you would stand that we might honor the reading of God's word. And hopefully you'll see what I mean about these circumstances that bring about the parable that we're going to study here today. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him, that is near Jesus, to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep, And has lost one of them. Does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So the immediate circumstances here that caused Jesus to launch into Luke chapter 15's three different parables are found in verses 1 and 2. And and here are those circumstances. So Jesus is spending time with notorious sinners. 
They found their way into the inner circle of Jesus such that Jesus is spending time with them and not with those who would be the considered the religious elites of his day. In fact, those who are here, these notorious sinners who are gathering with him, are listening to him, and they are eating with him. He is associating with them in a way that shows his acceptability of them here in this passage. And there are two groups of Jews who are appalled at the very thought of Jesus, this one who is supposedly a holy one, a rabbi, one representing the Jewish faith. It's appalling to them that Jesus would be eating and would be sharing a meal around the table and associating with individuals like this. And those two groups of individuals that are appalled in this way are the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, we've encountered those same groups several times through our study in Luke's gospel. But just as a reminder, maybe some of you haven't been here to hear about these groups, or maybe some of you are like me and you just need a little kickstart of your memory from time to time. But just as a reminder, the Pharisees were a group that ultimately thought that they deserved God's good favor because they had such a high regard for God's law and for the traditions of Judaism. They meticulously observed those traditions. They meticulously sought after God's law and sought to cross every T and dot every I. They strove to keep themselves separate from others who didn't live with that same level of kind of meticulous, diligent holiness. In fact, the word Pharisee comes from a Hebrew word, parash, which literally means to separate. They took pride in living a life that was separate from the general public of what they considered to be worldly sinners. And in fact, they took it upon themselves to police other individuals whenever they perceived that someone might be violating God's law or even violating their own man-made interpretations of that law. So on the outside, they gave the appearance of those who were really concerned about honoring God. God. And for that reason, they earned the respect of many of the people in their day. But on the inside, they were filthy with pride and self-sufficiency and the derogatory sort of mentality that looked down on everyone else and said, you're not as good as me. So Jesus was continually butting heads with this group, the Pharisees, as he called them to recognize their hypocrisy, to acknowledge their sin, and to come after him for enduring grace. The other group that we see here is the scribes. Now, the scribes were those who were entrusted with copying God's word. So you had these manuscripts that had to be manually copied in the day before we had Xerox and HP printers and whatever else you and I would like to kick on the average business day. But they had to manually copy these scriptures. And as you can imagine, if you spend a lot of time reading the scriptures, you spend a lot of time writing the scriptures out, you're going to get a pretty good knowledge of what's in those scriptures. And in fact, the scribes became the individuals that the rest of the Jews would come to when they needed to know a proper interpretation of God's law. And so they too consider themselves to be experts of God, elites among the Jews. They knew a lot about God's word. 
from the time they spent studying and copying it, but they lived very little of God's word in their daily lives. You, you could say that their brains outweighed their hearts. And when these two categories of religious elites saw Jesus welcoming the tax collectors and the sinners, they began to grumble. And it's the grumble of the Pharisees, the grumble of the scribes that prompts the teachings of Jesus here in Luke chapter 15. And Jesus then teaches in parables. Now, a parable is simply a story that gives us a real-world sort of comparison to a deeper spiritual reality. Many have summarized parables as earthly stories with heavenly meanings, which is a very helpful way of thinking of that. In fact, the word parable in the original Greek, literally means to throw beside. So Jesus would often just kind of throw up these real-world stories beside of some deeper spiritual truth so that his listeners would have this resonate in their minds and through this experience they would come to know a little more of what God was experiencing in the spiritual realm that was similar to what they would experience in the natural realm. And so this first parable, as I've said, is often referred to as the parable of the lost sheep. But what's most remarkable about this parable, to me at least, is not that a sheep gets lost. I mean, sheep get lost all the time. That's in the nature of the sheep. They wander astray. They're not really intelligent animals, okay? What's more remarkable about this parable is that a shepherd goes searching and when he does so, he leaves the 99 sheep to go and find the one sheep that's lost, bearing the burden of that sheep and rejoicing in his return. And what makes this parable truly remarkable is the even deeper spiritual reality behind this parable, which is that Jesus is showing us something about God. He's not simply teaching us that lost sheep are important to shepherds. He's teaching us that lost sinners are important to God. In fact, Jesus has come as the searching shepherd who goes after the one in order to return him to the safety of the flock. And so as we break this passage down, I want to share with you now four truths about the searching shepherd. Four truths about the searching shepherd. Here's the first of those. The searching shepherd welcomes sinners to come near and listen to him. That's what's happening in verse 1. We read that all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him. Maybe these were some of Matthew's friends. If you remember Matthew, also known as Levi, back in Luke chapter 5, responded to Jesus' call to come and follow me. And he left everything behind. He left his enterprise, he left his tax booth, and he went, and he went to his home, and he hosted a party where he invited all the other tax collectors and sinners to gather around and to celebrate this one whom he had decided to yield his life to. Maybe it's some of that crowd, those same tax collectors and sinners who are here in the presence of Jesus again. Maybe it's some of Nicodemus's crowd, as we'll later see in Luke chapter 19, that he, as another tax collector, comes to saving faith in Christ. We're really not told the names of all those who are gathered. 
there's only one thing that's really revealed to us about these individuals that are gathered here, and that is their reputations. And they're not very good reputations. They're, they had reputations of being tax collectors and sinners. You see, tax collectors were actually even considered to be this kind of special category of sinners in Jesus' day. Because as you could imagine, to be a tax collector in Jesus' day, what you had to do is you had to put a bid in with the Roman government, which was like this foreign ruling power. Right? The Jews wanted their own independence, but instead Rome is ruling over them. And if you wanted to be a tax collector, you had to be a Jew who was willing to say, I'm going to put in a bid to say that I think I can get this much tax from the people. And the highest bidder would win and then have the authority of the Roman army on his behalf such that when someone didn't pay up, he could sick the foreign ruling power the foreign ruling army on those who would not pay up and the way the tax collector earned his wealth was by collecting even more than he had put his bid in with the roman government and so you could imagine the sort of oppressive scandalous things that would be going on with the tax collector who was going to his own countrymen and demanding things that would fill his own pockets, and fill the pockets of a foreign government. And so the tax collectors were these corrupt thugs. They were a special class of sinners. They were despised even among the rest. But still, they were coming to Jesus to listen to him. And along with them were these others who were known for nothing more than the fact that they were sinners. I mean, that's a group that probably included all sorts of prostitutes and thugs and gamblers and homosexuals and thieves and adulterers and liars and swindlers and con artists. Their reputation was not a good reputation. Their past evils followed them in the eyes of their fellow countrymen. But still, they were coming near to listen to Jesus. And they were welcomed in his presence. In fact, the word that's translated listen here in Luke chapter 15, 1, is actually the same verb that was used back at the end of the passage we looked at last week, Luke chapter 14, verse 35, where Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That is, even though these people have a horrible reputation for the vile things that they have done, they are the ones who have ears to hear. They are the ones who are listening. They are broken. They are fallen. They are sinful. They are notorious and vile sinners. And they've been told all of their lives that they are the enemies of God. They realize that because it is true. But because they know it's true, they find something so sweet and something so special in this good news that Jesus is proclaiming that God is reconciling the world to himself. So what we find is that the searching shepherd welcomes sinners to come near and to listen to him. In fact, the phrase the Pharisees and the scribes use, that Jesus receives sinners That phrase in the original Greek has the idea of Jesus giving sinners access to himself and welcoming them into his presence. Because 
That's what Jesus, the searching shepherd, does. He welcomes sinners to come near and to listen to him. And so, friends, maybe you're here today and you've got a past. It's really just kind of followed you wherever you've gone. Maybe you've got a reputation that just lingers And everywhere you go, you can't help but think that that must be what's on the minds of those who are gathered around you. Maybe you feel like those who are gathered here with the Pharisees and the the scribes gathering on the outside whispering about you. Can you believe he's here with that track record? Well, friends, don't let your past define you. Jesus offers to transform all of those negative titles that we talked about for sinners. He offers to give new names to the prostitutes and to the liars and to the thieves and to the homosexuals and to the swindlers. He offers them the opportunity to be known no more by their former names, but instead to be known as the children of the living God, ransomed, redeemed, those he came to save, joint heirs with Christ. Don't let that past define you, friends, because Jesus has something much better in store. And so if you've lived a life that causes others to identify you by your wrongs, then I compel you, come near and listen, because there's still hope for you yet. Because Jesus welcomes sinners to come near and to listen to him. Did all of these individuals who are gathered around Jesus give their lives to him? Probably not. I mean, we don't have any record of all the sin in Israel or all the sin in some section along the road being eradicated at this time of Jesus' ministry. But we do read that they were all welcome to come near and to listen to him. Okay, you say, well, well, how can I do that? How, How can I come near and listen to God? Well, first of all, let me encourage you to find a church, and it doesn't have to be this church, but find a church that teaches the Word of God and come near and listen to Him. Carve some time out of your day to open God's Word and to draw near and to listen to Him in the truth that He's revealed. Carve some time out of your your day to, to bow down when you're alone in a private place And to draw near and to listen to him in prayer. He will not drive away those who earnestly seek him. And if the thought of standing before a holy God who like knows everything about you. And knows all the wrongs that you've ever committed against him. If that thought frightens you. Because you know that you've sinned against him. Don't run away. Draw near and listen to him. He will receive you. But don't expect everyone to be happy about that. Some people will grumble just like the Pharisees did in Jesus' day. And like, why would that happen? Why would sinners drawing near to the Savior cause someone to grumble? Well, it was probably just a matter of individuals having this mentality of, there goes the neighborhood. You know, this mentality of like we're the right ones of God and here come some individuals that are going to just corrupt all that we are and all that we stand for. 
But you see what these Pharisees and scribes misunderstood and what those who will stand on the outside and grumble today misunderstand is this truth. It's not our efforts that make us holy. God makes us holy. It's not our deeds of righteousness that make us holy. God makes us holy. God wasn't in this moment eradicating his call to be holy for he is holy. He was making the way for individuals to truly know holiness and to be made holy and to grow in the likeness of one who is truly holy, who is calling them to be his servants and he to be their Lord in this moment. Would it be a messy process? Of course it would. Will the church be a messy place at times if we welcome broken sinners to hear and to learn and to be drawn to the Savior? Of course it will. The church might be a messy place at times, but it's a beautiful mess, my friends. And the church that only welcomes a club of elites rather than the congregation of the lost is a church that has missed its objective and has missed the heart of God. Because it's not the power of the people that makes the difference. It's the power of the seeking shepherd. It's the power of Jesus that makes the difference. The issue that the Pharisees and the scribes had was that they would not consider the possibility that the one that they derisively called this man, as though he was simply a man, was not just an ordinary man. He was God in the flesh, reconciling the world to himself. And I'll say this. It's hard to have ears to hear what the Lord is saying when you're grumbling. You see, a grumble is this kind of low noise that tends to block out everything. I can't believe they're doing blah, blah, blah. And it's hard to hear over that low rumble. You just can't hear when you're grumbling. And I often wonder... How often in the modern church does the chorus of grumbling crash the joyful party of the Lord? Spurgeon once said this. He said, most people don't mind suffering in silence as long as everyone else knows about it. How often does a church die over the changing color of the carpet or the changing style of music or over the changing influence of outsiders who are coming in rather than rejoicing in the good news of hearing God's word rejoicing in the good work that God has done in saving them rejoicing in the ongoing work that he is doing to redeem others you see if we've truly been saved then what do we have to grumble about Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. If you've been here for a few weeks before today, you'll know that earlier in in Luke chapter 14, Jesus had a lot to say about eating with him. He had a lot to say about this forthcoming great banquet that we see described as the marriage supper of the Lamb in the book of Revelation. Jesus doesn't just welcome sinners in close so that he can chastise them or so that he can show them what they're missing out on no jesus welcomes sinners to extend to them the invitation to receive eternal life to gather with him at that great banquet to be the participants the invited who will share in the joys of the lord in his presence for all of eternity 
Because the searching shepherd welcomes sinners to come near and listen to him. That's the first truth about the searching shepherd. Here's the second one. The searching shepherd goes after the one sheep that has gone astray. In this first parable that Jesus launches into here in verse 4, he asks this rhetorical question. And the question is this, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the pasture and go after the one until he finds it? You see, Jesus is putting the scribes and the Pharisees in the hot seat. He's causing them to kind of step into this real life situation and say, if I were in those shoes, if I were in the shoes of a shepherd and this were to happen to me, how would I respond? And through this simple everyday scenario, he's causing them and he's causing us to think about how we would respond if our own livelihoods were at stake. Now, if you were a shepherd, then sheep would be your livelihood. If you lost a sheep, you'd probably lose your job. So a shepherd who was watching after his flock would regularly count that flock to ensure that all the sheep were present. And if just one went missing, he would leave the 99 to go and find that one. They became excellent hunters following tracks and tracking down the animals who they were looking for. And you know, the shepherd leaving the 99 in the open pasture where they are vulnerable, just to go and to find that one, that, that might seem in our minds like an ill-advised sort of decision. I mean, it's certainly a risky decision. Some might even frown upon that decision. I mean, why prioritize the one and leave the 99 behind? That seems like such a waste if you're just looking at it from a purely economic perspective if you're really calculating the risks of what can happen to those 99 when you're going after the one sounds like something that could be a waste unless of course you are that one sheep who's wandered away to everyone else it might seem like nobody is going to know the difference between 99 and 100 sheep But if you're caught in the brambles, if the wolf is coming over the horizon after you, if you realize that your wandering will soon lead to your demise, then there's nothing more that you hope for than that a good and a kind and a compassionate shepherd would come your way looking for you. And friends, take heart because there is such a good shepherd And his name is Jesus. In John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Is it risky to leave the 99? Of course it is. But the good shepherd is willing to take whatever risk is necessary to bring that lost one back to the fold. And the wonder of all wonders is that the good shepherd has paid the costly price by laying down his life so that his sheep might be saved. He did it for each and every one of you. He is not content for a single one of you to remain lost. He will keep searching just as a good shepherd would keep searching until he finds the one 
who is lost. And friends, what good news that Jesus keeps searching for the one that is lost until he finds it. The good shepherd keeps searching for the one that is lost until he finds it. So if you haven't come to Christ, and yet you haven't yet drowned in the river, or been eaten by a wolf, or slaughtered by a thief, or starved by your own inability to obtain the food that you need, if you are still breathing, then Christ is still coming after you. He is still searching for you. And when the Bible speaks of those who are apart from God, who have not come to Christ, it doesn't refer to them as disadvantaged. The Bible doesn't refer to them as missing out. God doesn't just say that they're on a less fortunate path. No, the biblical description for those who do not know Christ is that they are lost. You ever been lost before? You know what that experience is like? It can be a helpless sort of situation. It can seem like a hopeless sort of situation to be lost, to have no clue on how to get back to where you need to be. And I just say, if you found yourself at the end of your rope, hopeless and helpless, realizing that your own efforts to provide for a meaningful life have miserably failed, then I say to you, look up. The searching shepherd is coming your way. And he conveys to you now that you are more important to him than the 99 who are already saved. He's practically saying to you here, even though I have millions of others who are in my fold, if you are lost, I'm coming after you. And when I find you, I'll take care of you. I will celebrate bringing you home. For you, the one who has gone astray, finding you is my heart's desire. And Jesus says, I will not be fully satisfied with the millions of others while you remain lost I heard about a family that posted a lost and found sort of message online that read like this lost dog crippled in front paw blind in left eye mange on back and neck tail missing recently neutered answers to the name lucky And you know, a dog like that truly is a lucky dog. Because in spite of all that's wrong with him, somebody loves him enough to search for him. And Jesus makes it clear in this passage that we're all lucky dogs. Because there's someone who loves us enough to go after us. Faults and all. And the searching shepherd goes after the one sheep that's gone astray. That's the second truth about the searching shepherd. Here's the third one. The searching shepherd bears the weight of the one lost sheep that is found. In this parable, Jesus tells what happens when the good shepherd finds the sheep that has gone away from him. Now, we can imagine how we might respond in that situation, right? I mean, we might say something to ourselves like, that dumb sheep has wasted my time. That stupid thing has put my life in danger. I mean, I had to climb down a cliff 
I had to swim across a river. I had to leave the other sheep in a dangerous predicament because of that dumb sheep. And some of us would not be too kind to such a sheep that had wandered away and it cost so much of us. But when the good shepherd finds that sheep that has wandered away, that sheep that he is looking for, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing, according to verse 5. He is not angry with those who are found. Perhaps he even expected that they might wander away. But he is delighted when they are found. As we know from verse 7, For the sheep to be found is an analogy for the sinner to be saved by repenting and turning in faith to the good shepherd. That is, Jesus is not bothered by the wandering sheep who turn to him and are saved by him. He rejoices when he has found them. And the shepherds of literal sheep would have thrown that sheep on his shoulders The sheep would weigh about 100 pounds. You can imagine carrying that much extra load as he bound those feet together with the sheep kind of wrapped around his shoulders. But as he's carrying that load, the good shepherd with this thing on his shoulders, this extra weight is not griping. He is not grumbling. He is rejoicing. And oh, my friends, do you see the parallel of the gospel here? Do you see the good news that God, this one who is the searching shepherd, has laid the plight of wandering sheep on his own shoulders? In fact, God in the flesh came down from heaven to bear the weight of the cross on his shoulders as he marched up to a hill called Mount Calvary. To provide for them an eternal home. Rejoice and be glad for God is with us and not against us. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Paul wrote in Romans 8.32. The weight has been born. The question is. Will you turn from your wandering ways? Will you turn to the Savior who is searching for you? Will you let Him bear your burdens? Will you yield your life into His hands? Because the searching shepherd bears the weight of the one lost sheep who is found. That's the third truth about the searching shepherd. Here's the final truth. The searching shepherd rejoices when the lost are found. Not only does the shepherd rejoice as he throws this sheep on his shoulders to carry him home. We read in verse 6 that when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. That is, he calls for a celebration among those whom he loves. And again, Jesus isn't just talking about sheep and shepherds here. He's talking about the party that happens in heaven every time that key number that Jesus is passionate about pops up here on earth. When one, when one lost sheep is found, when one sinner repents, there is joy in heaven. 
And it's a joy that exceeds the 99 who need no repentance. And so it's important for us to think, what causes heaven to rejoice? Like, like what is repentance? What is this word that we talk about? Repentance in the original Greek language literally just means a change of mind. But it's more than that. It's a change of mind that ultimately results in the change of the direction in which our life is headed. It's a decision that says I'm headed in the wrong direction and I'm going to orient my life in the direction that God intends. It's the human component of saving faith. You see, repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. And even repentance is a gift of God, we read in the Bible. We yield our lives and we confess our wrongs and we entrust our lives to the God who searches and saves. And friends, listen to this. If you've been saved, your testimony is a happy story in heaven. Like your testimony is something that that Jesus is telling others about. that, That Jesus is rejoicing about. The angels are rejoicing about in the heavenly places. He's already telling his friends and his neighbors about the joy of finding you. Here's the question I have for you, though. If you've been saved, are you telling the story of what he's done for you? Are you telling the story that heaven considers to be a happy and rejoicing and joyful story? Are you spreading the news that he delights for others to know? Do you want to maximize your joy in heaven? If you want to, do you want to maximize the joy of those who are gathered in that place, then repent and invite others to do the same. And then share in the celebration of telling others the good news of what Jesus has done. And, you know, back to this idea of the shepherd leaving the 99 in order to go after the one. You know, that would be a most dangerous sort of decision for the 99 unless... All of the sheep were destined to go astray at some point or another. But do you know what sheep do? Sheep wander away. Sheep go astray. If the shepherd was not willing to go after the one, then his flock would be down to 99. And soon his flock would be down to 98 as another one wandered away. And then down to 97 and so on and so forth until there were no sheep left. If all of the sheep were prone to go astray, then the only hope that the 99 would have would be that the shepherd would go after the one and restore him to the flock. And that's why I've titled this message, The Hope of the 99. Because here's the reality. The hope of the 99, the only hope that any of us can hold to is that the good shepherd goes after the one who has gone astray. And in fact, in Isaiah 53, 6, we read, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so we gather here as the 99. We gather here as a church with a common testimony that we have been found by the seeking shepherd. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 25. For you were straying like sheep, 
but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So when we gather, we gather in celebration of the hope of the 99, which is the hope that God goes after the wandering sinners that we once were and that we occasionally still are because it is in the heart of God to go after the one. So hear me on this. The church ought to be a place of joy. We have found the hope of the 99. All of us who are truly saved have at one point or another been the one that Jesus is coming after. And if we have been found, then this should be our joy. And when others are being found, this too should be our joy. Gathering with fellow believers in Christ ought to be a celebration. Jesus prayed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, I want that to be especially true in our rejoicing over the one sinner who repents. And so let the house of God be a house of celebration. And let me also say this. If the friends and the neighbors of this seeking shepherd were truly good friends, and good neighbors of his. What would we expect them to be doing when the sheep went astray? Would we not expect that they would be joining in on the search for the one that was lost? And my friends, are we truly friends of God? Well, God's word says that we are. If we've truly been saved, Jesus has truly enabled us to be called his friends. And so what the shepherd does, what brings delight and joy and rejoicing to the shepherd ought to be what drives us forward as the friends of his. Whatever brings our friend and our shepherd joy should be the pursuit of our lives. And so when Jesus says, what shepherd when the one has gone away? will not go after the one. That should be a mandate for you and me if we have been redeemed by Christ. Go after the one. Go after the one that's in your sphere of influence. Go after the one whom you have the opportunity to speak the gospel to. Go after the one that is wandering astray, the one that is a notorious sinner, the one who everybody else has given up hope on because Christ has a heart that goes after the one. And if we are his friends, then we should too. And so I ask you, friends, are you going after the one? got a short video here to show you an initiative that we're going to look at in these next few weeks as I'm going to encourage each of you to identify who is your one. Who is the one that you are going after? Turn your attention to the screens now as you learn about this campaign.
Why would one matter to us? Because one matters to Jesus. Such a simple, practical way for us to echo the heart of Jesus. I mean, how difficult would it be for you to think of one individual that you could have one daily interaction with in order to strive to share the hope of eternal life with? That's what I'm going to ask all of you to pray about this coming week. Can you identify one person? Can you say, when we gather together the next time, who is your one? Can you respond to that and say, this is the one that I believe God is leading me to share the hope of the gospel with? That's our marching orders for this coming week. Let me just close by sharing with you, seminary professor and Christian author Howard Hendricks once warned Christians against this idea of enshrining the gospel in a church building by writing these words. He said, I can't find a verse in Scripture that commands a lost person to go to church. Now, do we want lost people to go to church? Absolutely. I mean, we are going to preach the gospel faithfully day in, day out here. We would hope that lost people would come to the church. But Scripture never commands a lost person to go to church. But he says, I know a lot of scripture that commands believers to go into a lost world. And friends, I think sometimes we get the mentality that we need to stay among the 99 where it's safe rather than joining the one who is on a mission to redeem the world. The one who has spilled his own blood to purchase the life of those who are notorious sinners like you and me once were. Maybe God's calling you to go after the one. Or maybe you're gathered here today and what you're sensing is that you are the one. You are one that God would be calling to himself. You are the one that God has in store to hear this message, this gospel, this good news, that no matter who you are or what you've done or where you've been, that his redeeming grace is for you, that you are the one that he pursues, that he would leave the 99, that he is not content until you join in, till you come home, until you become a part of his flock by yielding your life to him in repentance. If that's you, then I wouldn't want to close a message like the one that Christ has shared with us through his word today without giving you an opportunity to respond. Is Jesus calling you to be the one? Or is Jesus calling you to reach someone else who you know is one? Maybe, maybe you just aren't even sure where to begin with that sort of thing. You just need a time to pray and say, God, reveal to me one that I could reach with this hope of the gospel. Friends, there is good news in the good shepherd who has laid down his life for his sheep. And so if God is calling you through his word, wonder no more, my friends. Turn, repent, step out in faith, 
Greet the Savior who is coming after you. You don't know how to do that? I'm going to give you an opportunity in these final moments to respond, to, to step out, to, to come forward. I would be happy to guide you through that decision, to walk with you through what it means to entrust your life to Christ. That's a decision that you must make as Christ goes after you as the one. Is it you today? Let's bow in a word of prayer. God, it overwhelms our hearts to think of our lost state, to think of the sin we've committed against you, to think of how we've pursued our own kingdom, we've pursued our own objectives, we've wandered away chasing after our own desires. And yet still, you pursue the one. You go after one lost sinner. Your heart is not content with millions and millions who have come to Christ, your heart is still for even just one who would be apart from you. And so, Father, maybe there's somebody here who needs to hear that message today. Maybe there's someone who gathered here and and just feels, oh, Lord, like you've given up hope on them. Maybe there's someone who was once thriving as what they thought was a child of God or, or, or was once pursuing a life that seemed like it was going to lead to success, but they found that these things have ended in misery. God, reach out to the one. Pursue them with the truth of your hope that the good shepherd reaches to and saves the one who is lost. Father, let this be a place of rejoicing. Let this be a place where we expect that dirty, rotten sinners like ourselves will come to know Christ and be redeemed and find that we have new passions, new pursuits that grow us into holiness. Father, don't let us be the grumblers, but let us be those who would rejoice in what you're doing as you call even the one to yourself, Lord. If there's one that needs to respond in this way today, I pray you'd cause them to know the hope that Christ offers in the gospel and make that sweet aroma of the good shepherd be one that draws them near to listen and to receive and to pursue the one who is the good shepherd it's in his worthy name that we pray amen